0: has to do with the reality and the vitality of the first-generation church. And two aspects of the first-generation church really jump out. Number one, the supernatural change, the supernatural transformation of the original apostles in the aftermath of the resurrection. And they go from chickens to eagles. And all of them, with the possible exception of John, are martyred for their faith. And they're... uh, uh, unable to deny it because they've seen the resurrected Christ. And secondly, I think, very close to that, is the supernatural conversion of Saul, better known as Paul the Apostle. And we're going to study uh, that event today in Acts 9. In fact, this event, Paul's, Saul's conversion, is so important in, in Luke's mind. Luke's the human author of Acts. That he has this event referred to in detail three different times, he describes it in chapter nine, the conversion of Saul, in chapter twenty-two as Paul is arrested in Jerusalem after the third missionary journey. Luke records Paul going over the event himself, and then in Acts twenty-six when Paul appears before King Agrippa, kind of King. Uh, uh, Antipas II, the second, the great grandson of uh, Herod the Great. Just well, second. So Acts nine, Acts twenty-two, and Acts twenty-six. I'm not sure where that came from. Record this same event: the supernatural uh, conversion of Saul, the murderous Christian persecutor, into a guy that writes most of the New Testament and who, humanly speaking, is one of the major players, if not the most important person, in the first century church, first generation church. So we'll see that today. But uh, let's pray first for teachability and for troops, peace officers, firefighters. Now, let me, uh, I don't do this often enough, but let me uh, tell you who these people are. Of course, right in the center, not because he's more important than anybody else, even though in my mind he probably is. Uh, That'd be David Moore. That's Kate Fleming, really good-looking soldier. Uh, that is Scott Austin, who is a uh, helicopter pilot for the United States Coast Guard. That's John Christian, who is Carla Buchanan's nephew-in-law, right, Katie's husband. That's Sam Stribling. Uh, that is uh, Keith Donnell, who's David Birch's brother-in-law. And, of course, that's Matt Sanford. And we just saw. He's just coming into the room, so good, good timing there, Matt, on the entrance there. But uh, yeah, all, all these people and more are folks we know personally or are directly connected to us. So, as we pray for this longer list in the back of the bulletin, uh, we kind of center on these guys that we are so near and dear to our hearts. So let's pray. Uh, David Emerson, lead us in prayer in those directions for us. Thank you, David. Uh, Tomorrow, Debbie and I are going to leave town, take Cooper and uh, Peter back home to Tulsa and celebrate Cooper's birthday on Tuesday. And then, Lord willing, next uh, Wednesday, we're going to head down toward Texas and and see our families. And so with that in mind, as we uh, anticipate hopefully a great 11-day vacation, our faithful TBF secretary, Maxine Blastone, gave me a very interesting column that crossed her desk about vacations. And I think this is really helpful stuff for anybody. And I hope Debbie and I can apply this uh, this week. But this is uh, Jim Cross, who's associated with Focus on the Family. And he says this, My thoughts on vacations, I'm against them. And he says, uh, Not actually for going on a vacation, but I'm against all the preparations necessary To go on vacation. When I was single, I'd simply toss a few pairs of jeans into a bag, a few socks, and be on my way. I'm sure they have food wherever we're going. I'm sure they probably have supermarkets and restaurants and takeout places. I'm not going to starve. But now, well, the D-Day invasion might have involved less planning. My sister-in-law and brother-in-law are joining us this year in a cabin. Uh, there has been a near constant stream of emails and texts over the last three months over who's bringing what food stuff and how we might preserve our precious perishables on our three-hour drive, and my wife has drawn up extensive checklists for what to bring, tailored to the expected weather, meticulously composed after studying and examining. The average temperatures predicted for our stay, long shirts, pullovers, rain gear, a separate bag for shoes and shorts and T-shirts and sunscreen and sunglasses. It's hard not to be pulled into the frenzy. Complicating the process is the fact that we're driving. That means we can gleefully overpack. <laughs> So, I'm considering bringing things like my old birding books and my binoculars because if I'm birding, I'm going to need these. And also, I'm going to bring my adjustable walking stick I got as a birthday present 15 years ago that I've never used because we're going to be in a great place for hiking. Now, here's the truth of the matter it is so easy to get caught up in the furor, furor, I can't say that word very well under pressure, of taking and packing and planning and organizing that the real reason one goes on vacation to rest and relax and recharge is all but obliterated by the frazzled activity beforehand. Don't let that happen to you. Slow down, pack light, worry less, and enjoy more. You can't appreciate God's creation if you can't be in the moment. Put that on your checklist. So that's what that is. Okay, we come to chapter 9 of the book of Acts, and we're trying to, Remember the essential content of each chapter as we go through. So when we get through the entire book, 28 chapters, Mel will be able to think through the whole book of, of Acts. And we're using the statement, uh, Jesus is alive as head of his bride as a memory aid to help Angie and Brad and Kylie remember this stuff. So Jesus, every one of those letters stands for something. Jesus ascends to heaven, death on the cross as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice Everything that could keep me out of heaven and Bobby Dudley out of heaven and Wanda Skinner out of heaven. Jesus Christ died and paid for on the cross, paying our moral debt. Three days later, he was resurrected supernaturally, literally bodily. Can't reproduce that in a laboratory for you, Richard Dawkins. Sorry, it was a miracle. But his resurrection validates the saving power of his death, doesn't it? Because think about it, Shannon, a dead savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Or from Oregon to heaven. He can't do it. So the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ three days later, 40 days later, the ascension. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 1. Jesus ascends to heaven. In chapter 2, ten days after the ascension, we have the establishment of the New Testament church. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and uh, the events of Pentecost 33 A.D. in Jerusalem. Chapter three, we see the salvation of a lame beggar as Peter and John interact with a guy who's been begging in front of the gate, beautiful at the temple, for decades. And he's now saved, sealed, and delivered, not just spiritually, but physically, which sends a ripple effect through the city of Jerusalem because everybody knows this guy and has been trying to avoid this guy, you know, for 20 years. Chapter four, unleashing a persecution. It starts small and builds. You're marginalized and then you're demeaned and then you're criminalized. It's the way it works in human history. Scary. Uh, But, yeah, uh, Peter and John are arrested hell overnight, told that you shall not talk or teach about Jesus to anybody. And Peter just says, hey, we can't stop. But thank you very much. And they release them thinking they've scared them, but it doesn't work, does it? Chapter five. We have not external pressure, but internal problems in the church. We have uh, financial and integrity issues that are dealt with in Ananias and Sapphira. In chapter 5, chapter 6, we have a food fight. Some of the ladies in the church don't feel like they're being treated equally. So the apostles raise up deacons, seven deacons, including Stephen and Philip, to make sure that ministry runs properly and nobody feels aggrieved. Chapter 7, Stephen, talking about persecution, Rodina is stoned to death now in the city from uh The uh, Peter and John being arrested, the apostles being arrested uh, for a short period. Now we've got uh, execution, lynching, basically, in the streets of Jerusalem just outside. Now, come to chapter 8, abroad with Philip. The last two weeks, last two weeks in our study, we've seen Philip, the evangelist, uh, taking the gospel to Samaria. No self-respecting religious Jew would get anywhere near Samaria because there were spiritual cooties up there. So you've got to avoid those people in that place. God doesn't think, see it that way. And then last week we saw in Gaza an Ethiopian eunuch on the road from Jerusalem back home uh, is interacting with Scripture. Philip helps him see Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. was all about Jesus. And so the Ethiopian believes. It's interesting, Jan. Last week we saw a guy on a road going away from Jerusalem. This week we're going to see another guy on a road going away from Jerusalem. They're going in different directions. Uh, the Ethiopians going south. Saul's going north, but interesting things can happen on the road, which is a good thing to know when you leave on your vacation. Okay, just telling you. And then chapter 9, we see that life, Jesus is alive, A-L-I-V-E, comes to Saul, better known as Paul. Our passage breaks down like this. Verses 1 and 2 are the setting. Saul travels to Damascus to arrest Christians. Then we see the sensation, the actual conversion a very supernatural, very unique, verses 3 through 9. Uh, Saul hears and sees Christ just outside the city of Damascus. And then in verses 10 through 31, we see the sequel. What do you call it, a sequel? Nobody knows what sequel means. Because it starts with an S. And when you have a setting and a sensation, you've got to have something else that starts with an S. That's why. But uh, you can call it the aftermath or the status quo, or what happens afterward, uh, after his conversion. Saul's going to see two basic reactions, pro and con about him and his new faith in Damascus, and the same thing is going to repeat itself in the city of Jerusalem. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. I'm reading from New American Standard Bible. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and did some paperwork. Hold your place there. Go back to chapter 7. The first time we heard about Saul... Was back in connection with the stoning of Stephen, chapter seven, verse fifty-eight. Is the first reference to Saul in the book of Acts in the Bible? This particular Saul, of course. When they had driven him, Stephen, out of the city, because you you, get, you lose spiritual brownie points if you actually lynch somebody inside the walls. You got to get him outside the walls before you lynch him, or in this case, stone them. When they had driven Stephen out of the city, all the religious people prompted by the leaders, they began stoning him to death. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul is accessory to this crime. Uh, drop down to verse 1 of chapter 8, just a couple of verses below that. Saul, just so you'll know, was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death in this particularly gruesome way. And on that very day, the day Stephen was stoned, we have an a, a, uh, instigation of a concerted, widening persecution against the church. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Drop down to verse 4. But Saul, as part of this ongoing, wider-ranging persecution, began ravaging the church. Entering house after house and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. So go back to chapter 9. It's that Saul we're talking about. Now Saul, the guy we just read about, still breathing threats and murder. Uh, you know, killing Christians and arresting Christians was his job, and he was good at it. And he enjoyed doing it. Uh, against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked for letters from him. Caiaphas is the guy's name. He's the same guy who presided over the death of the Lord Jesus. As for letters from Caiaphas, the high priest, to the synagogues at Damascus, Damascus is like 150 miles north of Jerusalem, which is interesting, isn't it, that he feels like he's got to go up there to find them, so that if he found any individuals belonging to the way, one of the first titles for our faith, or for Christianity, was called The Way. Why would you call Christianity the way before it gets more organized? I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? We believe in the one who is the way, not a way, but the way. Uh, Both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Uh, Some of the commentators point out that probably what's happening here is uh, some of the folks that were special targets to be arrested in Jerusalem probably were were pretty powerful, well-known, had some clout, had some money, had the wherewithal to get as far away as Damascus. And so Paul wants to get those former residents of Jerusalem who believed in Christ back here to use as an example. And in fact, the uh, Roman government that occupied the whole region allowed uh, the local religious uh, leaders, in this case, the Jewish high priest and Sanhedrin, religious authority over all their people and religious issues. So this is exactly the way it would have worked. In effect, uh, uh, Paul is getting uh, letters of extradition so he can go up to Damascus, find former citizens of Jerusalem that they that all these people already know in Jerusalem who've tried to get away from the persecution and drag them back so he can use them as an example. This is what's going to happen to you if you dare to believe in this uh, uh, this imposter. They thought Jesus was an imposter, not really a savior at all. Now, the principle is, and sometimes we forget this, uh, as the new atheism, as it's called, gets more and more positive press, we tend to think those guys are our enemies, and they, they've decided to be our enemies. But also, is it possible for self-righteous religious zealots to do horrific things? You've heard of 9-11, right? Um, we all have. Uh, the principle is self-righteous religious zealots see Christians as a mortal threat. Always has been, always will be. Here we have an example of that. Paul is doing, he thinks he's pleasing God. He really is convinced he's doing the right thing. But uh, he's, uh, in fact, opposing the move of God. Today, uh, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, uh, ISIS, uh, the the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, uh, Hamas, those kind of groups, think they're doing the right thing. And So some of the new atheists will say, see what happens if you get too religious? If you get too religious, you kill people. And I always say, how many Methodist suicide bombers have you had to deal with recently? I mean, they're just not out there, right? So that's the setting. Now let's look at the sensation, verses 3 through 9. Paul hears and sees Christ just outside Damascus, on the road to Damascus, the road to Damascus conversion, as people call it. Look at verse 3. And as he was traveling... 150 miles, uh, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, just outside the city wall probably, a mile or less away, maybe a click away, 0.6 miles away, he's approaching the city of Damascus, uh, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And in the other accounts in chapter 22 and tw- chapter 26, is emphasized this is noonday when this happens. And this light is so bright, it overpowers just the brightness of the sun over Damascus. Damascus is an oasis in the middle of a, a vast desert in that part of Syria. So this was really a super powerful light, right? It's a supernatural kind of a thing. You can reproduce this. Verse 4. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice, Saul did, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That always blew my mind as a young kid, Carla, because was, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus had ascended, right, chapter 1? He's sitting just like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 said he would, you know, just uh, right uh, at the vantage point of uh, seeing his, uh, his plan or history being worked out, anticipating what we would call the end times. So, you know, he's not directly persecuting Jesus because Jesus has ascended to heaven, and yet it shows you how much he loves the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself for the Boy Scouts. No, Christ loved the church and gave himself... For the uh, Rotary Club. I'm all for the Boy Scouts, uh, with some biblical limitations, of course. I'm all for the Kiwanis Club, but Christ loved the church and he died for the church. And Christ says, you know, if you believe in me, I'm in you and you're in me, that kind of unity. He doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people, those who believe in me, my disciples? Uh, he doesn't even say, why are you persecuting my church? What does he say, Meg? Me, he personifies it. Yeah, so you see just how uh, personally involved Ron that Jesus Christ is with his universal church and with local churches. As a pastor who loves the local church, that really means a lot to me, and it's really pretty cool. Verse five, and he said, "Saul, who are you, Lord? <laughs> Please identify yourself." You know, and he said, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting." But get up, enter the city. And after that, it'll be told you what you must do. Wow. Uh, what a transformation, Bobby. This, here you've got Saul, who's proudly leading a powerful posse to grab Christians and drag them kicking and screaming 150 miles back to Jerusalem. And now he's been struck blind by this light. The very person he thinks he's opposing is obviously the Lord and Messiah, and I think he has been physically and psychologically and theologically, uh, I think they call it blowing your mind. His mind has been blown. But it's, kind of, it's, it's an interesting thing. This guy who so proudly left Jerusalem is now going to be led in as a, a blind man, temporarily blind uh, and essentially helpless. Look at verse 7. Uh, the men who traveled with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one, uh, As the other two passages, chapter 22, chapter 26, make it clear, the the syntax there in the original tell you the the guys that accompanied Paul could hear a roar, could hear a sound, but they couldn't make out the words. They didn't didn't hear what Saul heard as far as the articulation, but they heard a sound and they knew something supernatural had happened. Saul got up from the ground just as he was instructed. (laughs) And though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. He's fasting not just because he's not hungry after the uh, incredible experience. Now, I'm sure he's very shook up. But he's, he's actually praying, as we're going to see referenced uh, later in this passage. He's, he's got to rethink everything he thought he believed. Real quick, when you get Jesus crucified and risen in your equation, uh, human religion won't work anymore. You're going to have to embrace the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we've seen the setting and the sensation. Now let's look at the sequel or the aftermath or what happens now that he's seen the light. Road to Damascus experience of seeing the light, those kind of metaphors that are still used and nobody knows what they mean come back to this passage. So, so many of our modern metaphors go back to biblical themes and biblical events, but people don't know that anymore. Uh, if you read Lincoln, even Jefferson, I mean, people, these people are quoting all of these things. Talk about the Exodus. Uh, uh, when you go to Washington Monument and read, uh, chiseled in the marble, some of these presidents had stuff that's unconstitutional by today's standards. It's interesting. They're, they're eventually going to have to wipe clean. And Jefferson, no doubt, was not a born-again believer. He was a deist, and he'd be saying all kinds of crazy things that we would rejoice in because they're true about God, and they're chiseled into the side of his monument. But uh, I guess the Supreme Court doesn't know that. Maybe They probably haven't had time to visit. Let's look at uh, the sequel, The Aftermath, the New Status Quo. We're going to see two different reactions, both in Damascus and in Jerusalem, toward Saul and his new faith. Uh, Some are going to be offended. And they're going to attack Saul and his faith. Some are going to be very open and attracted and affirm Saul's faith. Let's start with the second group first, although with some initial caution. uh, What has Saul's reputation been? He's kind of the tip of the spear of the uh, effort to eliminate Christianity in its incipient uh, birth form. Right. And he's gladly uh, had people killed. And he's on his way to kill some of the big shots who got away from Jerusalem to get to Damascus. And now he's saying he's a believer, and it's easy for them to assume that he's just pretending so he can get all our cell phone numbers, you know, and they can all pick us up later kind of thing. So you can understand what's going on here. Uh, Verse 10, now there was a disciple of Jesus at Damascus named Ananias. We saw a different Ananias in chapter 5. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, it sounds like uh Eli, not it, in First Samuel? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight. It's one of the only straight streets in Damascus that runs east and west that still exists today. Straight street. And inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus. That's an interesting way to refer to Paul. That's where he's from originally, but he's been living in Jerusalem for decades. Named Saul, for he is praying Now, what did we read about in verse nine, three days without sight and fasting because he's praying and he can't read Isaiah 53. But he's rethinking Isaiah 53. He can't read Psalm 22, but he's rethinking Psalm 22. He can't read Exodus 12, but he's thinking about Exodus 12. He can't read Leviticus 16 day of atonement, but he's thinking about the day of atonement and Jesus. And he's deeply reflecting on on what's what's real and what's uh, worth dying for. Uh, so he's praying. You're going to find him. Verse 12. This is pretty cool. Um, and he sent a vision, uh, and in the vision he saw a man named Ananias, that's you, come in, lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. So he should be looking for you. No pun intended. Saul was looking for Ananias. I just came up with that on the fly, but no extra credit for that. Uh, but Ananias answered, now watch this. Part of the neat secondhand affirmation of the reliability reliability of your Bible, okay, is the fact. Look what happens here. If you're writing this 20 years after the fact, you're going to want want to make all the Christians look like pillars of perfection. You're not going to want to have Ananias getting this amazing vision. This is the one time he has a vision from God, and his first thing is, Lord. You know, that's a nice plan, but we've got to go to plan B because I've heard about this guy. You probably don't know who this guy is, Lord, but I've heard from a lot of different people. I mean, not just, you know, one source that thought a lot of people that, that how much harm he did to your saints. You, know, you don't want to do this, Lord. And, and if you want to do it, get somebody else to do it for you uh, at Jerusalem. And he has authority from the priest. He's got papers of extradition to get all the big shots that got away to get, bring them back to Jerusalem. And he's going to bind everybody who calls in your name. This is suicide. I don't, it's a suicide mission. I don't want to do this. Uh, this is what actually happened. And so Luke writes it down. I mean, Scripture records not just the uh, home runs, but also the strikeouts of its characters. Right? So he's trying to talk God out of it. In verse 15, But the Lord said to him, go. One word, go. Just keep going. <laughs> Only question you ask is how high, son. Uh, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, in a special way, and kings, King Agrippa, and the Caesar he's probably thinking about. King Agrippa you'll see in 26.2 in Acts. And kings, and the sons of Israel. He doesn't renounce his Judaism. He embraces Jesus as the first generation of Messianic uh, Jewish believers, the heart and foundation of the church, Jesus being the cornerstone. For I will show him how much he must suffer For my sake, you know, I always talk about uh, people like to claim Bible promises, Tom, but some of them they don't like to claim or like Psalm 73, my heart and my flesh will fail. Nobody claims that one. Jesus says in the world, you will have tribulation. Nobody likes to claim that one. Uh, uh, All who try to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. Nobody claims that promise very much. But that's what happened. Um, Real quick, go to Acts chapter 26. Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26 are the three places where the uh, sensation, Paul's sensational, supernatural, very unique conversion are talked about. And let's look at chapter 26 and uh, kind of see the rest of the story, more about his background and what's going to happen with Saul, which is a slightly fuller account in some aspects. Chapter 26 of the same book, Book of Acts. Agrippa, King Agrippa, a regional king, and that fulfills you'll speak before kings, said to Paul, you're permitted to speak for yourself, to defend yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his legal defense. In regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, the Jewish leadership, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense before you. You know the stuff, you know the background, I think you're objective, I'm glad to be able to present my case before you. Because you are an expert in all customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Like a good preacher, he's going to go a little longer than people want to listen to, so you got to be patient with well, that's preachers, okay? I'm just trying to be biblical. I'm just trying to keep it real for you. Um, so then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up. He's public enemy number one on the first century Pharisaical Jewish enemies list, right? Uh, all Jews know about my background, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, Uh, since they have known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee, according to the strictest sect of our religion, uh, that's what they're going to tell you. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Now, who are the who are our founding fathers? Who are a couple of our founding fathers as Americans? George Washington Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, who's about to go away from the $10 bill, supposedly, we'll see. Yeah. So who are the fathers to, to Jewish, to the Jewish faith? Yeah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham, Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and the promises about a Savior and that faith was reckoned as righteousness. People were saved in the Old Testament by grace through faith in a promised Savior. On this side of the cross, were saved by grace through faith in a provided Savior. Uh, the, verse seven: The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, everything in the Old Testament's all about the person and work of the Messiah. I'm being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? <laughs> He's just rhetorically asking that. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Henry, watch this. Saul's saying, look, I thought I was doing the right thing. I was a zealous religious person. I thought by killing Christians and putting down the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I'm doing God a favor. He's lucky I'm on his side. And this is just what I did. Many things hostile to the name of Jesus. I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. Now, Paul's going to say something very radical about himself in a few minutes at the end of this message. Keep in mind these sins he's doing, these murderous, horrific, violent Uh, sadistic kind of things. He's killing men and women. He's trying to force them to blaspheme, recant their faith. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. How can it get brighter than the Oklahoma or the Syrian sun at noonday? It's got to be a supernatural light source. Shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? A fuller account here. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm not going to let you get away, boy. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I've appointed you to uh, I've appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, to your personal conversion here, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Now, watch this, and I'm going to end with this verse. And this is why I'm reading all this: to open their eyes, Jews and Gentiles especially, that they may turn from darkness to light from the domain of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a heavenly inheritance. A inheritance among all those who have been sanctified. How? What does it say, Deborah? By faith in me. Saul came to faith in a very accelerated way, a supernatural way. But Saul was going to come to faith anyway. God's timing was different than uh, his, and God accelerated the process But Paul, from the get-go, was preaching salvation by faith alone in Christ alone to Jew and Gentile. Go back to chapter 9. And that's the gospel message. And I always like to say a book like Matthew, Kylene, the most Jewish of the four gospels, has a surprise ending because it ends with a great commission telling the Jewish apostles to go everywhere, even the Gentiles, even the Samaritans, right, all the world. And so salvation is not about who we are or what we can do for God. It's about who the Savior is and what he's done for us. Saving faith is not you trying harder, giving more, or giving up stuff. It's you embracing the Savior with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. That ungodly man's faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's Romans 4, 5. So that's our gospel message. We're not going to ask you to walk the aisle later. We are going to say today can be the day of salvation. If with all your heart, you'll trust in Jesus Christ like a little child can do and often does, especially in Christian homes like uh, the Sanfors. Okay. so uh, we're back in chapter nine. Uh, Look at verse 17. So Ananias uh, departed his house, entered Judas's house. That's a different Judas than the one we think about. And after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, this guy's already born again at this point. Uh, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming to to arrest people like me, (laughs) has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the spirit, be uh, that the fullness of the Holy Spirit would empower your ministry. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scale, some flaky stuff that was a, a medical reason for his temporary blindness that came about as a result of exposure to that supernatural light. And he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. Now, that was pretty spectacular baptism, but my personal favorite right now is Jillian's. I'm just telling you, but I'm not very objective. So Ananias is very happy and positive about Saul's conversion after an initial reluctance to believe. It's too good to be true. Now, let's look at the other side of the coin. Paul took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples in in Damascus. And immediately, Saul, who's got this reputation as the world's greatest Pharisee, uh, most virulent anti-Christian zealot, began to proclaim Yeshua, Jesus, in the synagogues. Historians tell us there were as many as 10,000 Jews in first century uh, Damascus, and there were hundreds of synagogues. This was a really strategic city. And Paul's got a lot of uh, targets, you know, lots of targets of opportunity here. He's going to the synagogues saying Yeshua is Isaiah 53. The servant of the Lord is Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he's the son of God. Now, the title Son, of the Messiah, appears in Psalm 2. And it emphasizes uh, the co-equality of this separate person from God the Father. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think Doug and I have talked about this, but... Two major titles for Jesus that he uses for himself are Son of Man and Son of God. And in fact, Jesus uses the title, the Son of Man, much more for himself than Son of God. Son of Man goes back to Daniel seven thirteen and 14, where we see God's agent of bringing in the end times and ending history on God's terms is a person, a glorious person in heaven called the Son of Man. You look at that and compare it with other data like Psalm 110, and you realize the Son of Man gets to that place in heaven to be the leader of the end times only after suffering, resurrection, and ascension. Uh, Son of God, so Son of Man was a title for the Messiah, emphasizing his glorified humanity. Son of God was a title for the Messiah, the Jewish Savior, emphasizing his full deity. And here Paul is proclaiming, proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues, obviously using the Old Testament scriptures, and saying he's the Son of God. He's the one Psalm 2 is talking about. He's the one Daniel 7 is talking about. All those hearing him in the synagogues were amazed. They were saying, we can't believe this guy's pro-Christian. He was the most virulent, violent anti-Christian we knew of. Uh, this would have been like Osama bin Laden uh, showing up at First Baptist Church Dallas, or better, Tangwood Bible Fellowship. It didn't happen, and he's dead, and he's where he needs to be right now, in my opinion, but we'll see. But uh, I don't think he had a deathbed conversion when the Rangers hit, but, or the, the SEAL team. Rangers, I'm sorry. It was the SEALs. The Navy needs all the stuff they can get. Let's just keep going on the passage. I would try to stay on, on message. It might help, you know. But, yeah, uh, they just couldn't believe that this guy is like Osama Bin Laden going to the First Baptist Church and saying I'm a Christian now, and you guys need to uh, realize that, or going, I guess, into a mosque, really, wouldn't it be, and saying that, that kind of thing. I probably ought to use analogies that actually make sense would probably help, too. Uh, but all those who were hearing him continued to be amazed and saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, Jesus? Now he's saying he's the Son of God. He's Psalm 2, he's Messiah. And he had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest. But Saul kept increasing in strength physically and spiritually, I'm sure, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving. How's he proving, Bobby, that Jesus is the Christ? What's he using? Old Testament, right? What we call the Old Testament, right? Uh, now watch this. So much so they got to put him out of business, Shannon. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted, the Jewish leaders in Damascus, the synagogue guys got together and said, we've got to get rid of this guy. He's too much bad publicity. Uh, but their plot to kill him became known to Saul. You can't keep a secret in Damascus. You can't keep a secret in Duncan. Now maybe you can keep secrets in Walters, but forget about it in Duncan. There are no secrets here. Uh, they were also watching the gates day and night. You know, the only way in and out. So they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let Paul down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. I can remember Sunday school pictures and learning all that. And I never thought about, isn't that weird? I mean, Jesus kind of stops time and space to reveal himself to this guy. And then rather than some kind of supernatural angelic appearance to blow away the enemies or to take Paul, you know and transport him from Damascus to Jerusalem. And what happened last week after Philip inter- interacted with the Ethiopian eunuch? What happened? He kind of gets supernaturally moved across, what, 80 miles to, to move up the coast, right? I mean, why didn't God do that then? Miracles are unique by definition. If they happen all the time, we, we, come, we come up with scientific laws to describe them, even though... How does gravity work? Nobody knows, but it's really a miracle. But we can describe 9.8 meters per second. And everybody likes that. So it's interesting that uh, Paul had to kind of uh, just kind of use uh, common sense and execute a tactical withdrawal. You don't have to have a frontal assault on all your problems. And those who sometimes see some of us pastors as weak, uh, you should see me in front some of the frontal assaults I've had to fight, man. I've been right up there getting all the bullets. But you don't have to have a frontal assault every time. You don't have to expect a miracle. The old joke about the guy, you know, the flood, he's on a roof, and he prays for you know, deliverance from the flood. You've. All, you, can, can I just go to the punchline, you know? I sent you a boat and a helicopter. What, what do you want? Remember that joke, you know, because the guy's praying to be delivered from the flood. He's on his roof and here comes a boat. He says, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. And the next day, here comes a helicopter and I'm saving, waiting for God to save me. Next day, he drowns. to death goes to heaven. Lord, why didn't you answer my prayers? let just plug in the punchline. Yeah, I, I know. That's what I'm saying. I thought they knew that. But anyway, it's a tough crowd. Uh, I'm telling you what. Yeah. So, uh, But it's all real. Um, now, verse, 20, uh, verse 26, let's go from Damascus to Jerusalem, and we're going to see the same kind of thing. There's going to be an initial reluctance by the Christian community there to believe this thing, because it's just too good to be true. Uh, but there's definite uh, concerted opposition on the part of non-believers, in this case, they have to be Jewish, against uh, Saul. Verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem uh, from Damascus, he was trying to associate with the disciples, with the Christians in the community there. But they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. Right. But Barnabas. Uh-oh. Now, Barnabas is his nickname, not his real name. Go back to chapter 4, verse 36. Yeah, we saw him in, the, uh, in connection with the Ananias and Sapphira episode. Barnabas was super generous. And got a lot of, uh, I mean, they made him hero of the week on the back of the bulletin. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted uh, that. They wanted the letter jacket, too, even though they never played sports. So, you know, so they kind of lied about it, lied about giving a lot of money, all the stuff they they have. Anyway, go back to chapter 4, verse 36. Now, Joseph, that's his real name. Jesus liked nicknames. You're not Simon. You're not a good listener. Let's call you Rocky. Uh, these biblical folks like nicknames. I like nicknames, too. Uh, Now, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, gave him the nickname because it means encourager or some encouragement, who on the large tract of land sold it, gave it to the church. That's where we first saw Barnabas. He and Paul are going to be pretty tight all the way through the end of the first missionary journey from now on. And here he is again. But Barnabas who's in Jerusalem, took hold of Saul and he's an encourager. And I'm sure he probably had a one-on-one with Saul, not to endanger anybody else first. And it really kind of debriefed him. And and Saul uh, gave a good enough uh, uh, presentation of his faith that Barnabas believed he was sincere. So Barnabas took hold of uh, Saul and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he, Saul, had seen the Lord on the road. And that he had talked to him, the Lord had talked to Saul, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus And he was with them after that, moving about freely in Christian circles, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. Remember, the Hellenistic Jewish widows thought they were being shorted, so he had to raise up the deacons, and and Stephen uh, dealt with that issue, and then Stephen gets stoned for being so identified with Christ. It's kind of ironic. We've got the Hellenistic Jews involved, the non-weren't born in Israel initially, didn't have... uh, Hebrew is their first language. They were speaking Greek primarily. But Paul was talking, he's multilingual, uh, talking and arguing in the sense of making a case uh, with the Hellenistic Jews. But they were attempting to do what? Put them to death. Uh, Righteous, uh, zealous uh, people, self-righteous, zealous people quite often think killing people they disagree with is the only obvious answer. But when the brethren, the Christians in Jerusalem, heard about the fact that Paul had reached the point of no return, critical mass in the opposition against him. They brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him away to Tarsus. Now, as we get uh, to chapter 10, Lord willing, in a few weeks and see the uh, conversion of Cornelius, we'll show you some pictures from Caesarea. But as you know, you know, we were uh, he's in Jerusalem. He's going to Damascus, sees the light, stays in Damascus for a while, preaches in the synagogues, comes back to Jerusalem, introduces himself to the church. And pretty quickly, the opposition level becomes intolerable. So notice it says the brethren kind of said, Paul, we're going to protect uh, you from yourself. We're going to take you to Caesarea, which was the Jewish, uh, which was, excuse me, the Roman capital of the region. Pontius Pilate's offices were there. And then from there to Tarsus. And, of course, Tarsus is where Paul was born and grew up as a younger boy. So he be kind of a, you know, kind of a, a local... Local boy made good and stuff. So he'd probably be safer there than just about anywhere. So it made sense for them to do that. Now, verse 31 is kind of a summary statement. Uh, In a few weeks, uh, we'll talk about the way these summary statements are placed throughout the book. And you're going to see a pattern here. This is the second one we've seen. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Now, that's not possible. They're being hunted down like dogs and killed. Peace is kind of like joy. It's not what you tend to think it is. Joy doesn't mean you're ecstatically happy when you've just lost your house, lost your health, lost your uh, loved one. Joy is stability. It can range from ecstatics to stability. It's just, it's kind of the inner tranquility of the soul resting in Christ. Uh, happiness has to do with happenings. It's not the same thing as joy. Joy is more profound than that. Peace. Uh, isn't the absence of conflict, it's peace of mind because you're centered on Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians 4. Um, I don't know what uh, Doug's going to deal with the next two Wednesday nights, but based on his biblical and counseling training, a nice passage you might want to do sometime would be Philippians uh, 4, 4 through 9. And it talks about the peace of God. There's, There's peace with God, and there's the peace of God. Peace with God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, right? But peace the peace of God is peace of mind. It's some kind of stability and tranquility that transcends even negative circumstances. So look at what Paul says. He says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say I rejoice. You, that doesn't mean you're ecstatic about losing your job or ecstatic about... Uh, drunk drivers, it just means that you've got a tranquility rooted in Christ even when bad stuff's happening all around you. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known, be made known to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God. And then the peace of God, kind of the eye of the hurricane, I call it. You're not denying the problems that are surrounding you, but you look beyond the problems, have some basic tranquility which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds. So go back to Acts 9.31. That's the kind of peace we're talking about. He's told you 18 different times that they're facing persecution, arrest, and death. So not facing the absence of conflict or uh, enmity against them, but they've got this peace of mind that they're in Christ, they're doing the right thing, and that's all we can do. And as I see the fruited plain... Uh, Man, I, I I got peace. I'm I'm sad for our culture as it continues to degrade uh, the whole concept of family and marriage and is watering it all down and punting it away. And um, but you know what? The darker the background, the the brighter the light shines. Right. So uh, I'm also sad that for the last forty years, uh, the heterosexual community has demeaned marriage because of uh unjustified divorces and all kinds of couplings before, during, and after marriage that belittle marriage. So we've kind of brought this on to ourselves. We've brought the whole culture to look at marriage at a much lower level than it ever had before, and then you get all these other things that spin off and that's what happens. So uh but again, uh that doesn't affect your commitment to your family or spouse, does it? And the more you, you know, live that out in a consistent biblical way, the more you're gonna stand out. Uh, we'll be targets in some ways, but also God will use that uh, to be a, a witness and a light uh, for people who aren't going to come to a church and listen to a preacher talk to them for 50 minutes. All right? Maybe after they get saved they will, but uh, not before that. Okay? Boom. So let's close here. Um, looking at Saul and his conversion, and we saw that he said he was happy to see people killed, and he was zealous about killing all these people. And I want you to look at a verse before we close. Look at First Timothy chapter one, and we are almost done, really, this time. I'm going to try to keep my word on that. Do my best. But look and see what Paul says about himself, uh, just at, at an experiential level, based on who he was and what he did. As a self righteous religious zealot before he came to faith. First 1 Timothy 1.15, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am, not I was or used to be or could have been. I am foremost of all. King James says, I'm the chief of sinners. Uh, Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost of self righteous religious zealots can actually get saved through faith in Christ, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So I would just say, you know, when you think of somebody who's bad, you think of maybe murderers and rapists and child molesters, and I would immediately think in those categories myself. But Paul's saying he's the worst sinner he knew. Because he directly opposed Jesus Christ and those who loved him and believed in him. And I think one thing we learned from the conversion of Saul and the way God totally rehabilitated him and built the church much on, uh, greatly on what he did in so many different ways, especially 13 out of 27 New Testament books written by Paul, right? That nobody's so bad they are beyond the grace of God. Uh, and of course, flip side of that is nobody can get right with God by religious, zealous, uh, works or, or that kind of thing. So I would just say uh, somebody in your sphere of influence is somebody you love might, might be a relative or friend, a neighbor and you desperately would love to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ and they haven't. And they might not be like Saul in their self-righteous sin they may be very immoral or something else or really good people just don't think they, they need anything outside of themselves whatever it is. Never stop praying for people like that. Uh we'll we'll see in heaven after we debrief people for billions of years, we'll probably see about five or ten or fifty people that in the Christian community were, were praying for their public enemy number one, and those were used by God in part you know to to pull off this conversion that we read about in chapter nine. Uh, so never stop praying for those uh, that you love and care for, even if they haven't come to faith uh, that you know of yet and uh, also I would say uh i think to the extent that people want to be religious in america they think christians are saying if you if you're good enough if you're good like julie demerson and maxine Blystone and jack smith and you're nice people and you try hard and they they're nice people and they try hard i'm sure they're going to earn their way into heaven and but i you don't know me brad you know i've done a lot of bad things a lot of people still think in american culture to the extent they want to be religious that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell And the Bible says that Christ died for sinners and all of sin comes short of the glory of God and salvation is through faith in Him, not of works. So never stop praying for those who are out of the fold. Never stop saying and affirming to people who think they're going to go to heaven because they're good, that that can't work. If good works can get us to heaven, then Christ died needlessly, right? Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to be encouraged by the fact that Uh, You can change a heart like Saul's that is intent on not just uh, uh, limiting what Christians can do. He wanted to pull this thing up by the roots. He wanted to literally kill every Christian he could get his hands on. And then you make him uh, a paragon of Christian virtue and service, even though he never gets over the fact that you loved him enough to supernaturally accelerate that process and uh, bring him to yourself. Uh, We pray for us as we interact with people that uh, maybe disagree with their moral stance or some of the things they say or how they say them, but we work with them, they're in our family, they're in our neighborhood. We want to show them affirmation as as people in the image of God. Help us to never stop praying or help us never to give up on anyone because uh, every salvation is an amazing Class A miracle. And uh, if you can save Saul, you can save anybody. Uh, also help us to uh, never give people the impression that we think we're good with you and okay for heaven because we got a church or because we're nice and we're moral and we try hard and we're clean and thrifty and obedient and reverent. Uh, help us to give glory to the grace of the Savior and make, make it clear uh, to people who uh, examine us and who know us that, that we're not resting in our goodness but in the greatness of the Savior and and any goodness in us is a reflection of that. I thank you for each one who's here. I want to pray for the kiddos today off campus for their safety, fun, and that this will be an exciting and memorable day for them. Uh, And I thank you for each one who's here and pray that we would uh, be excited about what you've got to teach us from the book of Acts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.